Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Open your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 1. It's our text this morning, verses 26 through 28. I was uh, taking a walk earlier this week uh, in the morning, as I normally do, and I was walking through a a neighborhood, nearby neighborhood, and I was walking down the street, and I looked ahead, and I saw this guy cutting his lawn on a lawn tractor. And uh, as I got close to his property, he pulled the, the tractor down onto the road and pulled out right in front of me and stopped the tractor, blocking my path, and turned off the tractor and just said hello to me and just, you know, asked some things about me and just, you know, engaged in some small talk. And one of his questions to me then was, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh, you're a pastor, huh? Well, let me ask you a question. He said, are you telling me that if I go down to Walmart, that I can go into the woman's restroom I think he meant Target, actually, because Target is the store that has the policy now saying that transgendered people can go into the bathrooms of their choice. But uh, I I think my answer was, I mean, really, that's up to Walmart, I guess, but I went on to give some of my thoughts on that situation. But um, what that encounter revealed to me was that people are asking questions about this issue that is before us and in the news and in our culture about transgender people. I thought it was interesting that as soon as this man heard that I was a pastor, he expected that I would have an answer to that question. And I would say that for a lot of people, it's not just being a pastor, but being a Christian. People expect that Christians will know what they think about this issue. And so, We're going to spend some time this morning talking about this question of transgenderism. And some of you at this moment might be saying, oh brother, not again. Here we go with another sermon on some controversial sexual ethic issue. And uh, that's totally understandable. I know a lot of you are tired of hearing about this in the culture, in the media, on TV, when you come to church, it's probably the last thing you want to hear about. And we've addressed the subject of same-sex marriage more than once here from the pulpit. And so there was a lot of hesitation in my own heart and mind about whether to do this out of concern about overkill and hitting this issue uh, too often. But I just want you to hear my heart on on this situation. I'm not trying to to pick a fight here. It's not my intent to berate transgender people or those who struggle with different sexual issues. Uh, It's just simply that as a shepherd of this congregation, as a pastor here, I feel an obligation to teach you, present the word of God to you, particularly in regard to areas that are most fervently under attack in our culture. 
the responsibility of any pastor to make sure that his congregation is taught well and that false teaching is confronted and corrected. And I might remind you of a passage that many of you might be familiar with from 1 Timothy. This is Paul. This is an exhortation to pastors. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They'll seek out people to say what they want to hear and turn away from listening to the truth. And they'll wander off into myths. So, I sense an obligation to address this issue before you and the elders are in agreement with me on this. So that's why we're doing this. Somebody once said, where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And where the battle is raging, in our culture this year, it's a little different than last year, where the battle is raging is on this very basic, basic question. What is a man? What is a woman? What does it mean to be a man? And what does it mean to be a woman? It's a question 100 years ago that people would have easily been able to ask. The world has no answer for that question. But the Christian should have an answer. And I think the scripture does give us some answers to that. And it begins in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. So please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read this short passage and allow it to launch us into some other um, passages in the scriptures that address this issue. Of course, this is a foundational creation passage describing the creation of man and woman. Genesis 1, starting with verse 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Lord in heaven, we need your Holy Spirit as we do every Sunday morning as we hear your word. And so, Lord, would you please accompany the preaching of your word today with your spirit to proclaim truth, to prepare these dear people to respond in faith, to teach us your revealed will about who we are as your creatures, to instruct us and prepare us to serve you well, to follow your leading, to do all things, Lord, in gratefulness and thankfulness to you because you've not only created us, but you have redeemed us in your everlasting mercy through the giving of your Son. So let him be exalted and praised and honored as your word goes forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as usual, we got three things that I want to present to you today with regard to the question 
of transgenderism. So the name of the sermon is Male and Female, He Made Them, a Biblical Response to Transgenderism. So we're going to look at this first of all from the world's perspective, then we'll look at this from the Bible's perspective, and then we'll look at this from Christian's perspective. How does the world respond to this? What does the Bible say about this? And how should the Christian react to this? So first of all, here's kind of the, the position that's being presented in the world today about gender differences. And the idea is this, that male and female are fluid according to personal preference. Male and female, as different sexes or genders, are changeable alterable according to a person's personal preference. Now, transgenderism is actually very rare. Uh, it only makes, they only make up uh, about 0.3% of the population, at least in the United States. That equals about 700,000 people total in the United States. So not a lot of people, but nonetheless, transgender people and the transgender movement, if that's what you want to call it, has become very visible in our culture. And we're hearing a whole lot about it uh, in our world. And again, that's another reason why we sense the need to address this. It's not the church picking this fight, I don't think. It's the church responding to what is going on in our world. But you've heard about Bruce Jenner, of course, the former Olympian who considers himself transgender, now goes by the name Caitlyn Jenner, and last year named Woman of the Year by Glamour Magazine, Bruce Jenner, now Caitlyn Jenner. We see this on Facebook, where <clears throat> on Facebook there are 58 different gender options for a person to choose. Uh, but apparently that's not enough, and so there's even an additional place where you can write in your own. 58 different genders. And now we've heard recently, last month, that the United States government is requiring public schools to allow transgender students to enter the restrooms of their choice, or the restroom that matches their gender identity with threat of withholding public funds, federal funding, if that is not accommodated. So again, another reason why we're doing this sermon is that this is not an isolated fringe issue. Any student in public schools, any parent with a student in a public school is going to have to deal with this because of the recent mandate from our government. Let me give you some definitions here about what we're talking about, because it's easy to misunderstand <clears throat> um, the various nuances and subcategories involved here. This is what transgender means. It's a state or condition of identifying or expressing a gender identity that does not match a person's physical sex. So. You'll notice in this definition that there is a distinction to be made between a person's gender and a person's sex. So that's very important to understand. A person's sex refers to his or her biological status as male or female. But gender 
refers to a person's attitude or feeling about his or her biological status. So that's a very important distinction to make, and that's what allows transgender people to say that gender is fluid. Not necessarily saying a person's sex is fluid, but a person's gender is. And by the way, you've heard the, I don't know if it's called an acronym, LGBT. You've heard that phrase many times. The T at the end of that stands for transgender. Uh, now, there's another term <clears throat> that we often hear, uh, or maybe a little less often than transgender. It's called gender dysphoria. Dysphoria being kind of a, a level of discomfort or unease. Gender dysphoria is when a person's psychological sense of male or female does not align with the person's biological sex. So again, notice that distinction um, between the personal regard for the person's sex and the way that person actually is biologically. Um, American Psychiatric Association and their list of disorders used to call this gender excuse me, gender identity disorder. And just up till a couple of years ago, that has been removed. It's no longer considered a disorder, and this term now replaces it, gender dysphoria. So the idea here is that gender is something that is not fixed, that it's fluid, that it's changeable according to a person's personal preference or desire. Uh, there's even a term called pangender, which is a person who is all different genders at the same time, considering that the possibility that there's even more than two. And now, with this conception of gender becoming more widely accepted, it's now considered also in some circles to be wrong to try to persuade somebody that his or her gender should match his or her sex. And so laws have been passed in certain areas, certain states, where it is said, if there is a boy who wants to identify as a girl, you cannot try to persuade him that he's actually a boy. And so in Lincoln, Nebraska, for instance, there have been directions given to public school teachers to not use the terms boy and girl. Teachers cannot refer to their children as boys or girls because of the assumption that it's wrong somehow to um, inflict upon a person a certain gender restriction. So some talk about breaking us out of our gender straitjackets, and that's part of what is going on. Now, some clarifications here. As I understand it, transgender does not mean that the person has had um, sex reassignment surgery, sex change operation, doesn't mean that. I don't think that Bruce Jenner has had sex reassignment surgery. So it's possible to be transgender and, and not have that surgery. It's also possible to be transgender and not be same-sex attracted. So this is a different question than sexual orientation. And there's also something <clears throat> called intersex, which is a situation where a person's physical characteristics are ambiguous with regard to their biological sex. 
the word that used to be used for this was hermaphrodite. But that word uh, apparently is, is no longer recommended to be used. The word is intersex. So um, while intersex is the physical condition of having ambiguous genitalia, um, transgender is more of a psychological condition where the person's gender is considered to be fluid and changeable. So a lot more to be said about that. Um, if I've misspoken in any way in that description, I, I would welcome to be corrected. Um, but I want to say, and as I often do when we address these kinds of issues, that if, if you are a transgender person, or if you know somebody who is transgender and has been struggling with this, I, I want you to know before I go any further that we welcome you here at this church. We'd love to have you among us as often as you'd want to be here, worshiping with us. Uh, this church is a place not for people who have it all together. This is a church for broken people. We all have our various dysfunctions and sinful issues. We're all sexually broken in one way or another. We are all in need of the shed blood of Jesus. There is only two, there's only really one dividing line between humanity. It's not between heterosexuals and homosexuals or transgenders. And it's between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. Those are the two major groups. You're either in one or the other. And we want to see you come, faith in Christ, and live for him. That's our heart's desire. All Christians, no matter what you think of this issue, we should all be humbled, humbled by what Paul says here in Ephesians 2. Remember that you were, at that time, in the past, there was a time when you were separated from Christ. There was a time when you had no hope, when you were without God in this world. But something wonderful has happened. Now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, living apart from God, wanting nothing to do with Him, you, by His grace, were brought near by the shed blood of Christ. Let every Christian cling to that and remember that. So I want to make this distinction. There is a difference here in, in what I'm addressing today between <clears throat> the person who is struggling with sexual brokenness and, and needs the, the love and the care and the patience and the understanding of the church of God. Th there are those people. And that's not really who I'm addressing for the remainder of this sermon. What I'm going to be talking about more are the active cultural forces at work in our world that are seeking to get us to believe something that simply is not true. The active forces that are seeking to get us to deny what is an obvious physical reality in order to cling to something that is really a fantasy, a fiction. It seems our culture is moving in the direction of what one writer has called the age of mass delusion, where what goes on in a person's head is divorced from reality. And with the mandates and the policies that are being administered in public schools, we see that this is even trickling down into the way our children are being taught. And so, to all parents here, I would exhort you to have a conversation with your children about what they should do 
if, for instance, your daughter finds herself in a locker room with a naked man in front of her? It's a very real possibility. It's even likely if things continue the way they are. And so parents, you, just, you need to care for your children, talk to them about that, advise them. But I think that's one of the things that makes this so alarming is the way our children are being instructed uh, in this way. Here's a writer named Jennifer Hartline. She says this, teaching children from an innocent age to become completely unmoored from physical reality is psychologically abusive. It's teaching them to disregard their bodies and that absolutely everything in life hangs on feelings. There's no anchor. Nothing is objectively real. Everything is in flux and entirely at the whim of one's feelings. If you feel like you're a boy, you can be one. If you feel like you're a girl, you can be one. You know, sometimes if someone is saying that something irrational, sometimes what you'll say to them is, it's all in your head. And when you say that, what you mean is what you're concerned about or worried about is not real because it's all in your head. This gender dysphoria is something that's all in a person's head, but the culture is trying to get us to accept that whatever is going on in a person's head is reality when that's not the case. All of us, friends, are vulnerable to this, not just children. All of us living in this culture are vulnerable to cultural pressures. We swim in the waters of a culture that is constantly propagating certain messages. That's why it's so important for you to be here on Sunday mornings. You get one morning here in church, you get six days out in the world. The odds are stacked against us. That's why you gotta be here, that's why you gotta be in the Word. You've got to be in the Word to keep your mind shaped and sharpened in accordance with the truth because we're all vulnerable to cultural pressures. As an example of this, I went into a coffee shop a couple weeks ago, a coffee shop not named Starbucks, and I went and I ordered a coffee and I said, I'd like to order a tall coffee. Tall is the term that Starbucks uses for their small coffee. Nobody else calls it tall. Starbucks calls it tall. I called it tall and another coffee shop immediately caught myself and apologized. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Starbucks is probably your competitor. And the guy said, he said, no problem. People do it all the time. Starbucks is just so embedded in our culture. You just, you can't, it's hard to get away from it. It just gets into your mind. It gets into the way you think. And that's really my concern. Concern is not that there are transgender people. There are all kinds of dysfunctional people, myself included. My concern is those efforts to shape our thinking. And so this is why Paul says this in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world, the culture, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God, uh, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. What is good and acceptable and perfect in God's eyes is not that gender be something fluid and changeable. So let's look and see what the Bible says. The Bible's perspective in sum is this. Male and female are distinct as part of God's good design. They're distinct from each other. They are not the same. So let's go to our text finally, Genesis chapter 1. The context here is the creation of all things. This is before the fall, of course, which takes place in Genesis chapter 3. So this is a description 
of life before sin. This is the world when it was once good. Everything is upright and perfect. And God gives this description in the word about his creation on day six, the apex of his creation, that is, the creation of men and women. And so we see this here in verse 27 in particular. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. And then we see this key foundational phrase. Male and female he created them. So first of all, notice the equality that exists here. There's a lot to be noticed here about how male and female are the same. So we don't want to miss that. Male and female here are considered equally able to image or project their creator. The image was not given to male and not female, not to female and not male, but to both of them. Male and female are equal in their ability at this point to fellowship with God and serve him and love him and please him. They are equally dependent upon God as their provider and sustainer. And they are equally given the command in verse 28, the creation mandate, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. This command to take control of the created order, to be responsible stewards of the creation, is a command given both to male and to female. And there's much more to be said there. God has created male and female equal in dignity, in their image-bearing capacity, and in the command to subdue the earth. So that's very important to see. And so we see this male and female, but even with this equality between male and female, it's got to be significant that in this passage, it's talking about the image of God, that God decreed that there would be two sexes that would capture or display the image of God. So apparently, an essential part of God's image being disseminated into the world involves two sexes. And therefore, a blurring of these two sexes must obstruct in some way God's design for how his image and his glory is going to be communicated into the world. So a guy named Owen Strachan says this, to fail to honor God in one's body is to blaspheme divine design. To put it differently, biology is destiny. Your body is not lying to you. Your anatomy is telling you who you are and who God made you to be. So there's something about the image of God that requires not just one sex. There's something so diverse and wonderful about the image of God that God wants two sexes in order to capture that and display it. And these two sexes are fixed. They're not changeable, and we don't see a direct statement to that. We can look to science to help us with that, however. There's a guy named Paul McHugh, who was former psychiatrist-in-chief uh, at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Uh, he said this about the fixed nature of the sexes. Sex change, he says, is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women. 
but it's really not possible based on a person's biological makeup to change from one sex to another. There are differences in men and women. A man has like a thousand times more testosterone in his body than a woman does. But a woman's body is designed in a way to store more body fat in order to bear children. So as one writer said, uh, you know, a man typically is going to be able to outrun a woman, but a woman is going to outlast him in a famine because they're, they're designed differently. I mean, sometimes, it, you know, we're taking time here to describe things that ought to be self-evident. <laughs> Men and women are different. They're designed different. And so because of the difference between male and female, there are distinct roles that God has required of each of them. And so I want you to see something here. We could spend a lot of time in Genesis talking about this. I just want to make one point here. If you have your Bibles, I want to go through chapter 2 a little bit here and just and point out something to you, <clears throat> to show you the distinction among the gender roles, okay? Looking at chapter 2, so here we have a separate account of creation and the creation of man and woman. And look at chapter 2, verse 7. question is, of male and female, who was made first? 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Who's formed first? The man, woman. Verse 16. Who was given the command to not eat from the tree? Verse 16, chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. So who's given that command? The man, not the woman. Verse 19. Who names the animals? that God had created. Verse 19, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So who names the animals? The man, the woman. Verse 23, who names Eve? Who names the woman? Verse 23, then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the one who names the woman is the man, not the woman. Now watch this. Go to chapter 3. 1. To whom does the serpent appeal? As he seeks to tempt Adam and Eve. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, not the man. It seems here that one of Satan's strategies is to evade or to distort, to circumvent gender roles as God has created them here in Genesis. It's, I think, significant that a reversal and an undermining of the gender roles is the occasion for the fall of mankind into sin. Isn't it just astounding that what's going on today was going on in the Garden of Eden? This effort that we are seeing in our culture and in our country 
to erase gender distinctions is satanic. Now, I'm not saying transgender people are satanic. I didn't say that. The effort, though, to undermine these gender distinctions is, it seems, a work of the devil. God's good design is that male and female would be distinct from each other, that there would be different roles and responsibilities for each, that they would be complementary, that is fitting together and helping each other, not competitive. It, it just seems very ironic to me that a transgender woman who wants to be a man is celebrated when what she is doing is denying what has been given to her distinctively by God as a female, what makes her unique and separate from the male as a female is something that she is denying. I'm not sure why that is something that's celebrated, and it's certainly not something that the Bible would condone. The Bible wants men to be men and women to be women. So what is the woman's role? Well, look at verse 18. I have a lot more emphasis placed here on the man. <clears throat> Then on the woman, but in verse 18, it says, chapter 2 again, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So this is something that's said about the woman and not the man. The woman is a helper. The man is not called a helper. Now, don't receive that as a demeaning remark about women because the word, the Hebrew word for helper is also used for God. This term helper has no sense of inferiority or deficiency. The idea here is that this woman is going to provide what the man lacks. God says it's not good that the man should be alone. He's not self-sufficient on his own, and so he makes woman to bring skills and abilities and proclivities that the man doesn't have and that the man needs. Men need women. They're not self-sufficient apart from women. And women need men. But there's a difference between the two, and they're complementary to each other. So again, uh, Owen Strachan says this, we should glory in manhood and womanhood. That is the distinction between the two. We should see them as Scripture sees them. The successful enfleshment of the Creator's super-intelligent plan for humanity. That's what God has in mind for the way he has set this up. And by the way, if you're looking for some further reading on this, wonderful book, The Grand Design, short, 150 pages. Um, I would recommend that to you. It's very helpful to me. Um, so that's the way God has set things up. Male and female are distinct as part of God's good design. Let me take you to one other passage here. Deuteronomy 22. Here's how this kind of outworks in the world. Notice this, what God says, a woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord God. So two things to notice there. The expression of the person's gender should be tied to the person's biological sex, seems implied here. And that there is a warning to people to be careful about dressing in a way that would cause confusion about whether he or she is a man or a woman. It's from the law of God. 
Some of you are saying, yeah, it's Old Testament. Does that really apply? Let, let's talk about that later, okay? <laughs> I just can't anticipate every question and objection that's, that's in your mind right now. <laughs> but I'm happy, happy to talk with you further about it. But Deuteronomy 22 is uh, an outworking of the principle that we see in Genesis chapter 1. Male and female distinct as part of, good's design, of God's good design. So last thing, what is, should be the Christian's response to this? And it should be this, male and female then by Christians should be embraced for God's glory. And this is a way we have an opportunity as Christians to simply live differently than the world, to really be counter-cultural in simply the way we live as men and women, as husbands and wives in this world. It's a terrific opportunity to live in a way that is distinct. It used to be you have to you know, go out and do something really enormously newsworthy in order to get attention. It seems like as Christians, all we got to do is do simple stuff. <laughs> and it's already getting attention. Basic stuff that all Christians do. And here's a basic thing that I'm going to tell you that seems so strange to the world. But I'm going to give you two exhortations here about how we as Christians can live in a countercultural way to show that God's way of designing the sexes is better than allowing them to be fluid or changeable. The first is this. Men, <clears throat> act like men. That sounds like a chauvinistic statement to you. It comes right out of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men. Be strong. Men, act like men. Now that doesn't mean that you have to comply with stereotypes in our culture about what it is to be a man. Like you, <clears throat> excuse me, like you have to be at the gym pumping iron or you have to leave the seat up in the bathroom, or you like to slay dragons in video games, or you like to hunt. I mean, you can do those things, I, I guess, but that doesn't make you a man. None of those things makes you a man. Nor is there anything wrong if a man wants to cook or if a man wants to be a dancer. The Bible doesn't prohibit that. It's very important for us to distinguish biblical categories of manhood and womanhood from cultural categories that have been imposed on us. So what does it mean to be a man? Let me just offer some suggestions here. These are broad principles. You can apply them specifically. Men should be ones willing to take the initiative, willing to lead, step up. Men should be willing to provide for their families. Not that there aren't some times when a woman provides and the man does something different for perhaps a temporary period of time, but generally speaking, the man should be willing to provide. The man should assume a role of defender and protector, particularly of women and of their families. Men should be willing to do the hard thing. It's the man that should be getting up on the ladder and cleaning the gutters. It's the man who should be in the crawl space. Do the hard thing. I mean, isn't that what Jesus did? Talk about the perfect man. He did the hard thing, didn't he? He went to the cross for sinners. Lead your family spiritually in prayer and Bible. That's not to say that the woman can't read the Bible or can't pray with the family. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the man should be the one generally willing to step up and take a lead in that and make sure that it happens. A man should be a decision maker. Not that he doesn't take input from others. Not that he doesn't talk with his wife if he's married. 
but that he is a decisive person. He's not a procrastinator. He doesn't put things off out of fear of making a mistake. He makes decisions. He has a firm handshake. Back that up with the Bible, but I think it's probably a good application. Have a firm handshake. Seek to grow in godliness. Be a man who loves Jesus, a man of the word. The mark of a man of God is the mark of God on the man. Dress appropriately. Men should dress like men. In the way you dress, there shouldn't be ambiguity about whether you're a man or a woman. Now, I know with cultural changes that there's a lot to talk about there. And, and so, you know, we need to talk carefully about how to apply that. But I think Deuteronomy 22.5 would make that pretty clear. So, men act like men. Women act like women. Women should act like women. There are instructions in the Bible given specifically to women. Here's one, 1 Peter 3, let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. So again, this is not a responsibility for women to comply with stereotypes about what a woman should be like. This doesn't mean a woman can't give her opinion. It doesn't mean a woman can't play sports. It doesn't mean a woman can't start a business. It doesn't mean a woman can't be president of the United States. Look at Proverbs 31 sometime and read about a very capable, competent, skillful, independent woman in the marketplace. But I would say that what it does mean, according to scriptural exhortations, a woman should not be defiant, irreverent, or obnoxious. She should be oriented toward the home, that she's in the home all the time, not that she doesn't work, but has a basic orientation to making things well at the home. Look at Proverbs 31, 27. The woman should show respect for her husband if she's married, both in the house and out. When she's talking about her husband, she should respect her husband and show an attitude of submission to her husband. She should pursue spiritual maturity she should dress appropriately. She should dress in a way that leaves no ambiguity about whether she's a man or a woman, in accordance with Deuteronomy 22.5. I'm going to give just a couple quick examples, and, and I'll be done. Just from my own marriage, <clears throat> um, about how this works out. My wife is a, a great encourager to me. She, she is a, she's a great helper. And so one of the ways that she does that is every Sunday morning she prays for me before I come over here to, to preach a sermon. She always pulls me aside, let's pray. And um, she has uh, lately been in Richmond pretty often taking care of her elderly mother um, on weekends, and so that's why she's not here now and not here on some Sundays. But even when she's away, she calls me and prays for me on Sunday mornings. And she did it this morning, too. I couldn't pick up, but I've got the, the voicemail. I've got her prayer right here. <laughs> She's mindful of her role as a helper. To me, that's a huge help. That's an encouragement to me, to help her. For me, it's a little harder to find examples of maybe being a, a manly man in my relationship. I'm a passive person. I'm a procrastinator. The sermon is just as convicting to me, men, as it is to you. One small example of where I think I might have got it right. Um, some of you know we used to have these ongoing disputes with our neighbors. 
our neighbors had these really vicious dogs that were always jumping up on the fence and <clears throat> they're moved away now, thank goodness. But it was really disturbing to my wife. She was bothered by the fact that these dogs are always jumping on our privacy fence. And, and my feeling, honestly, to begin with was, what's the big deal? I mean, there's a privacy fence there. You think the dog's gonna knock down the fence? I mean, it's just not that big a deal. But she was just traumatized by this and said, I want you to call the police. Because I talked to them before, actually, and we weren't getting, making much progress. I want you to call the police. And I remember just thinking, call the police? What are you talking about? It just seemed like an overreaction to me, and we didn't have a good relationship with these people anyway. They find out we called the police, it's only gonna make things worse. I didn't wanna do it. But God just kind of gave me this insight, and it just kind of occurred to me. Here's an opportunity for you to show that you want to protect your wife, police. So I did. I didn't agree that that was necessarily the right thing to do, but my wife needed to be protected. She needed to know that I was willing to protect her. You know, calling the police is not really that courageous of a thing to do. I wish I could say I went over there and tackled the dog, you know, and wrestled him to the ground, and I you know, did a manly thing. I didn't really do that. But I sought to protect my wife. And I think those are just two simple examples of how women act like women, men act like men. Friends, there's one culture. We're living in a hostile culture to these things. There's one culture that, that's going to last, and it's, the, it's gospel culture. It's the kingdom of God culture. That, that's the culture that we're, we're all going to, that Christians are going to have to get used to because that's the one that's going to last. It's going to be sustained. A culture in which male and female differences not only continue, but are even symbolic of the great work of our Savior in coming to give his life for his bride. So let me just leave you with this. Revelation 19. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sound of Mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. That's a picture of the culture that will never end. Let's pray. Lord, would you please help us to know how to respond in faith to these things? Help men to be men and women to be women. Help us always to carry ourselves with humility and grace. Help us to be faithful to you in all things. God, please help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.